Opinions expressed on ACB Radio are those of the respective program contributors and cannot be assumed to serve as endorsements of products or views of the American Council of the Blind, its elected officials, or its staff. Hello, hello, and welcome everybody to day two of the California Council of the Blinds virtual conference and convention. Our theme this year is navigating the future together. Um, I just want to take two seconds here to remind everyone that we do have our virtual exhibit hall open right now as is 9 a.m. I will be sending that out to the list again today this morning, but if you are not on any of the CCB list and would like to visit, you can email me at convention.ccb at gmail.com and I will shoot that right on over to you. Again, that's convention.ccb at gmail.com. And I am Sarah Harris, first vice president of the CCB. And this morning we are joined by Steve Mendelson from the North and Pam Metz from the South. And they are here to give us a wonderful presentation about healthcare advocacy, navigating healthcare in the dark. So many of us, we go to the doctor, we're, you know, with a family member, the doctor's talking to our family member, not us, you know, we're trying to make appointments and the website isn't working. And they're going to talk to us about some different scenarios that have happened in their lives or the lives of others and what have happened to, you know, be a resolution in that. So I'm going to go ahead and hand it all on over to Steve and Pam. Thank you very much, Sarah. And good morning, everyone. Thank you all for being here. We're going to try to do something a little bit unique today. We're going to have a dialogue which combines some of Sam's personal experiences, situations she encountered uh, along the lines that Sarah described and others, and how she dealt with them from an advocacy point of view. And then I'm going to uh, add in uh, what might be the legal perspective surrounding each of these situations. Uh, we're going to talk about three situations that Pam has encountered in her life that she's dealt with and that she's generous enough to share with us today. And then if time permits, we're going to uh, engage you and the audience in some dialogue. So uh, with that in mind, uh, uh, Pam, good morning, and why don't you start? Good morning, everybody. This is Pam, and hello. First off, um, the first scenario is very interesting. I lost my sight 20 years ago. Oh, okay, great. Well, it's been since June of 2020, 2020 of 2000 and so that's 21 years ago um i have a very rare optic autoimmune deficiency that attacks my eyes but they didn't know this at the time they just were trying to protect the blindness i was working at the time and um had already lost the sight in my right eye and had gone to the doctor because i was losing driving home realized i couldn't barely see went to the emergency room they gave me an eye drop which caused it they had given me an eye drop that caused it the headache to get worse, the next thing I knew, I couldn't see. Went to the doctor, was told, well, you need to get a spinal tap. We need a spinal tap so we can find out what's going on with your eyes. Went home, laid on the bed, was thinking about, okay, I'll just wait until they call me so they can do this spinal tap, and, and they're going to schedule it for the next week or two. And, and so this happened on June 19th when I lost all the sight. It was June 19th when I lost all the night the sight 22,000. So when I got a little while later, a couple hours later, I got a call from Kaiser. I was under Kaiser medical care at that time, and this and so I got a call, and I was living in Orange County at the time, and I was told that uh, we oh we have an appointment on September 16th. Oh, you might. Oh, really? September. 
She said, I said, don't you have anything sooner? This is very serious. She said, no, we can fit you in in September, accept that appointment or not. So I took the appointment and I thought about it and I said, let me call my own doctor who was a Kaiser doctor and I said, and let me call a patient advocate. So I called my own doctor and I explained to her what's going on. And then I called a patient advocate and explained to them what was going on. And within a couple of hours, I got a call back from both stating that your appointment is going to be the next day. And can you get a ride to Kaiser or your uh, Belinda to do the spinal tap? And I said, sure. But it took me calling the Kaiser physician, my, my doctor, and I even remember her name, and the patient advocate to get this moved forward. Otherwise, I would have had to wait until September 16th, and that wouldn't have done me any good because it would have gotten worse, and the headaches were bad already, and, and they couldn't figure out why I was losing the sight, so they wanted to, me to wait until September 16th. It didn't make sense. So I called both the doctor and the patient advocate and had the appointment the next day. That's it, Steve. Well, that's a, a great story, Pam. Uh, and uh, I really appreciate the advocacy skills and tenacity that you showed there. I think if they called me and said September 16th, I would have asked what year. Uh, in any event, uh, what you did was uh, utilize the resources at your disposal and resources which, uh, in theory, ought to bring about some results. It's very important, particularly in managed care systems, uh, to have a doctor who's willing to go to bat for you uh, in terms of scheduling or in terms of what tests are ordered and things of that nature. And it's also very important to have a patient advocate uh, who, who will go to bat for you as well. Uh, sometimes we are lucky in that regard. Sometimes we are not. It's sort of the luck of the draw. You can't tell. From a legal standpoint, the aspects of this that intrigue me are as follows. Number one, I think that uh, in the case of a rare condition such as yours, it might easily have been the case that you needed to go to a number of specialists to be properly diagnosed, let alone treated. It sounds like you were fortunate uh, in getting a diagnosis uh, reasonably quickly, but often uh, with something rare and uh, uncommon, such as your condition was, uh, that's not the case. So the question then becomes, under our insurance systems, what rights do we have to a second opinion or in the case of a network like, like Kaiser, to go out of network. And that's basically pretty complicated, but broadly speaking, uh, if you can't be treated uh, for your diagnosis that you have, or can't be properly diagnosed, or have a history of dealing with a particular specialist or kind of specialist, you have, uh, and again, I'm speaking very broadly here, a right to insist on being allowed to go out of network. Uh, sometimes you may even be able to get some assistance in finding a suitable out of network practitioner but you have a right that uh, under most of the uh, uh, managed care systems that are in place, uh, uh, and it would certainly be the case under Medicare as well, uh, to insist on being allowed to go out of network and have a, the uh, non-network non physician uh, reimbursed uh, at, at the applicable rate that would apply if you were in network. Uh, again, negotiating these is almost often more the issue than establishing legal right. Uh, in many of these situations, the real determinant, as you have uh, demonstrated already, and may be described as uh, one's social skills and one's bureaucratic skills, and maybe to a certain degree, one's medical knowledge. And in your case, you had enough knowledge to know that the procedure couldn't wait. But uh, it's these soft, these soft skills 
which sort of uh, splits the difference between law uh, and uh, social interaction uh, uh, with a bit of medical knowledge sprinkled in that really determined the outcome in all too many cases. I could cite the laws that apply, but uh, until you got them activated in the face of resistance, uh, it would be a long time and probably, as a practical matter, too late. But you did it, and that's great. Thanks, so, Steve. You want to tell us about another one? Yeah, the second one is happened in 2008 when I decided seven when I decided to have weight loss surgery, and we had um, moved out to. Ken and I had moved out here to the valley, and um, I was going to Kaiser Woodland Hills, and I told him, uh, and, and I decided to do the weight loss program, and I decided, I told him that I needed the paperwork, the, the information, the log, the ability to read all their stuff in an accessible format, just like everybody else in the class, and I had, I've been, been involved with CCB at that point for a while, so I knew that I could get I should be able to get everything I needed in an accessible format to be able to either plug it into the computer or to uh, have it in Braille or some other format that would make it easier for me to follow along with the rest of the class in doing this bariatric program to have the surgery. Well, I was told, well, we can't get that for you. We don't know how to do it. They had many, 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 many excuses. But I broke it down. I talked to Ken. Um, I talked to other people about this, and I thought about it, and I said, well, look, I don't need people sitting here reading me these questions, and then I have to tell them my personal insights of personal business, and that's not fair. Nobody else in the class has to do this. So I talked to the instructor again and the person who was running the program, and she says, well, I don't know what to do. I don't know what to tell you. And I said, so, okay. I said, so this so I'll have to take it above your head. So I took it. Ken told me who to contact. I said, okay, I'll handle it. I don't need you to handle it. I'll handle it. So I contacted my patient advocate. I contacted med, um, uh, member services and uh, was member was told member services said yes. In, in your in your pro in your profile, you can get you should be able to get everything you need in accessible format. And my patient advocate said the same thing. You should be able to get, we will make sure you do. They kind of sort of did. They got me a CD that did not work at all. They just threw everything on the CD, pictures and all, graphics and all. And I could not manage that CD to save my life. I gave it to Ken. He could not manage it to save his life because you could not get above those graphics. I reported it again. We went to a young lady who handles the whole area, the whole southern region. I forgot her name, but she's a patient, um, a person who handles the southern region of of, of um, Kaiser. And I spoke with her, and she said, "Okay, we will make sure we get this done properly." It took them. The program was 12 weeks. I got the CD in a corrected format where I can actually write myself notes and put them in the seat on the in there, print out the page, put it, I could copy it, put it on my computer, and then answer the questions and then print it out and take it to class. I got this CD. Now understand the program was 12 weeks long. I got this CD week 11. And um, I did as much as I could. I was approved for the surgery and everything, but it took them from week the before I started actual 
actually started the program to week 11 to get me the CD in a format that I could literally use, make a copy of the page, print um, put it on my computer, answer the questions, and then um, print it out and take it to class. But it took them that long to get it in, in a format that I could at least handle on the computer. So when I get when I got this done, they were, oh, 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 we're sorry, we're sorry, but it's okay. And that's it, Steve. I finally got it, but it took 11 weeks to get it. Wow. I'd say better late than never. Clearly, you and Ken made a very formidable advocacy team. And I, I doubt if anybody could have gotten it more quickly. Still, that's very frustrating and very wrong. So what are the legal issues that this story suggests to us? Number one, the first problem is that for something like a CD, which is routinely handed out to a lot of people who take a particular course or enter upon a particular line of treatment, that should be available in accessible form to start with. They shouldn't have to do it on a one-off basis when somebody makes a request. It ought to be, it ought to be there. It's not, uh, it's not as if they don't have printed copies available to send out to people who sign up for the course. So that's problem number one. Uh, and the way you want to deal with that legally uh, would be to see if they have a, practice, a procedure or a policy in, that, in covering the matter, uh, and if not, to try to get them to institute one. And ultimately, if it's serious enough, and they won't institute one, or if they institute one but refuse to actually comply with it, uh, then to seek legal redress. And I won't go into the various means of doing that right now, but there are ways one could try to do that, again, bearing in mind that it's going to be a lengthy process at best. Uh, broadly speaking, also, you're talking about access to information, uh, electronic or, or print or otherwise, uh, both uh, uh, unilaterally in the sense of information that just comes to you as a patient, and also interactively, in the sense of information uh, that you have to give to to someone else uh, to, into the system, so to speak. So uh, what are the issues that are raised here? Well, the first issue here is uh, uh, we're not talking about documents in and of themselves for their own sake. The documents matter because they tell you what preparations you have to make. They tell you uh, if there are any contraindications, who should or who should not get the procedure, perhaps. Uh, they tell you about the prep that you may have to do if any, they tell you about what you have to do during during the the, the course, or or, or they say in preparation for a procedure, uh, and so those are all issues of pretty straightforward accessibility. Oddly enough, some of the early landmark uh, cases under the ADA involved access to healthcare, and those cases, including a very famous Supreme Court case, uh, made it very clear that uh, people with disabilities have a right to treatment. Uh, they can't be turned away because of their disabilities. Fine, but as you found out here, that doesn't say much about what the quality or timeliness of that treatment will be. And those are stickier, uh, more difficult and more elusive problems to get hold of. The next issue, of course, which you also allude to is privacy. Uh, in theory, we all have a right to privacy uh, in the medical system. There is a statute called HIPAA, Health Insurance Portability and Accountability Act, which you all know about because whenever you go to a doctor or fill out a form, uh, you get warned or have to consent to uh, your, uh, agree to uh, your knowledge of the HIPAA provisions. Well, again, I would argue, and this has never been litigated yet, I'm hoping it will be if, if uh, uh, the opportunity comes up, and I hope it will. Uh, I believe where forms are inaccessible or when one, or when one is required to give information verbally, to someone not of one's choice uh, and someone who would not normally be authorized to receive such information uh, or one has to reach out for help from a third party, often even a stranger, 
uh, as you sometimes do, for example, in the case of of, of the kiosks, uh, which give you admittance to healthcare facilities. And we'll be hearing about kiosks in the next hour. In those cases, I would argue that your right to privacy is being forcibly violated, that you're being forced to waive your right to privacy against your will. And I believe there is a possibility for administrative, I mean, I know there's a possibility for administrative complaints under HIPAA to the Department of Health and Human Services to CMS, but uh, I'm not aware that that uh, route has been followed very often yet. I'm hoping that it will be if the occasion arises, sadly enough. Uh, so uh, again, I, I commend you for your perseverance and for your ultimate success. And uh, those are some of the legal issues. So uh, why don't we go on? I, I'm gonna suggest, if you agree, Pam, uh, that we do, do your third and final scenario now, and then uh, take questions from the audience members uh, on whichever one or, or ones of the scenarios they want to talk about further. That's fine. Um, the last scenario has to do with Ken when he was in the hospital, and all of you know he was in the hospital for 23 days between Kaiser Sunset, which is in Los Angeles, and Kaiser Woodland Hills, which is in the San Fernando Valley. Um, uh, when he... We had discussed his do not resuscitate orders, do not resuscitate as a DNR. We had discussed that, and it was in his uh, advanced directive and when we had already filled that out. And um, he uh, developed MRSA, and he had a terrible infection. And we knew he, he knew it, and we knew it, and he ended up in the hospital having strokes and stuff like that. Well, he had gone to – the, the doctors wanted him to go to – Kaiser Sunset, which is in Los Angeles, to see if they could re repair his heart valve because the MRSA was growing all over the heart valve and they were trying to get the MRSA under control. And the doctors talked to me um, before they sent him over there and I said, did you talk to him because he is alert? Well, you know, he's blind. I said, so am I. So talk to him. So they talked to him, and he said, fine. And I said, okay, do, does he have, they asked me, does he have a DNR? I said, yes, he does. And he said the same thing, yes, I do. So when we went to Sunset, they did all the tests and found out that um, he did have a, a bad spell where he almost died because of one of the antibiotics trying to kill the MRSA. And um, they took him off of it, and they decided to do, put him on palliative care, which means basically hospice care. Um, in the hospital, they called it palliative care, and I had a, no problem with that. In the meantime, we had called his. I called his daughter and got in touch with his daughter. Oh, what an experience that was! But um, when he was at sunset, I decided. I asked him, "Do you want to go to Woodland Hills? It's closer to home." And he said, "I want to go home to sun. I want to go back." to Kaiser Woodland Hills. I said, okay. And his daughter said, no, 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 don't move him. I said, it's up to your father. He can make his own decision. And so we moved him back to Woodland Hills, and um, they fought, his family fought me tooth and nail about his do not resuscitate order. They said it was falsified, blah, and everything. And then um, we had to call his case manager. We had to call the hospital's hospitalist. We had to call the patient advocate, and I had to call one of um, what they called down one of the med. I think it was uh, administrator or something like that. They called down to discuss this with the family because the family was yelling at me and calling me all kinds of names and stuff like this. But Ken and I had already discussed this, and it was in his advance directive what he wanted done. 
and uh, they, they they were accusing me of trying to kill him and things like this. And so the social worker and the if I hadn't called his social worker, the hospitalist and the uh, patient advocate and the the social worker had the, his his uh, advanced directive with her and read it to the family. If we hadn't have had that already done. I don't know what they would have tried to do to keep Ken alive. I have no idea what that his family would have done. But we had already taken care of that. So I had to literally deal with his family when Ken was dying. And it was in things like that happen. It happens in pretty much every family. But Ken and I took care of this long before he got sick. And an advanced directive is very important, very, very important to all of us. You need to make sure it's done. But I had to call the social worker and the hospitalist and the uh, patient advocate to back the family off of me because if I hadn't have done that, they would have, I don't know what they would have done to try to keep him breathing. But um, they found out there was nothing they can do. Um, his, he did have a do not resuscitate order that was posted on his door and um, he died very peacefully. And Franklin, that's my guide dog, and I were both there. But um, it 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 took a, it took me a fight to get that get his family to understand that yes, he does have a DNR. No, I'm not trying to hurt your father. No, I'm not trying to hurt your brother. And I called all these people, and if I hadn't called them, he I don't know what they would have done. And this hurts my heart every time I think about it because he was precious to me. So. Yeah, if I hadn't called his social worker and she came over and gave me a hug, she said, if you hadn't, if you guys hadn't have done this, we don't know what would have happened. He could have done it. He could have filled one out when he went into the hospital, but we had already taken care of it. And I had to push Ken to get this done. It took me, ooh, it took me a minute to get him. Come on, you got to get this done, get this done, get this done. So it's done. And, um, and he was hard-headed about it. I don't want to do it right now. But he got it done, and it took us a minute to do it. But And the patient advocate was wonderful. She talked with the family. She pulled them to the side between her and the, them and the social worker. And then the hospitalist explained to them that with the MRSA, it was basically killing all his organs. You're not going to. He's not going to survive this. They had to put it very bluntly to them. I knew this. Been in a lot of years working with in the hospitals, but they needed to understand that. And that's what happened to him and us when we were him when he was in the hospital. Thank you, Pam. What a painful situation and we're really grateful for your sharing it with us. We know we know what a what difficult time it was and what a painful memory it must be. Uh what strikes me about this from the legal standpoint uh is uh and once again you hit the nail right on the head. It's the importance of planning, of preparation. And that means two things. It means, number one, thinking through what you want to do, and number two, making sure to have the documents that reflect that. There's always, uh, in, in the legal world, a distinction between truth and proof, as I like to say. Something can be true, it can be somebody's intention, it can be somebody's wishes, uh, but if there isn't the necessary documentary proof, all kinds of problems can arise. And these problems you've described, uh, uh, again, very aptly, what happens with families, where there's disagreement about what to do, and where some people don't want to let go, and other people uh, recognize the futility of imposing further suffering. Uh, uh, and that causes problems, but it's even more likely to cause problems where a disability is involved because the medical system, frankly, and this is uh, 
something which can manifest itself in legal situations, but which is ultimately more attitudinal than anything else. The medical system does not distinguish disability from illness. Uh, it, it, and, and that's really the fundamental problem that I think uh, many of us, particularly people who are undergoing hospital care or acute treatment uh, face. I can remember myself being in the hospital uh, for a couple of days several years ago with a gastrointestinal problem, uh, and they insisted on putting up rails around my bed. And I said, uh, yeah, why? I'm not a railroad train. Uh, and they said, no, you know, you might fall out of bed. I said, well, that's ridiculous. Why am I any more likely to fall out of bed than anyone else? You don't put rails up around everybody, do you? No, we don't. Then why me? Well, that's our rules. We have to. Uh, and the point here is that uh, the question is, what is the law? And very often, as a practical matter, the law is the rules and policies and procedures of the entity or agency or institution you're dealing with. And uh, in, in, there's a, uh, a concept called the law of the case. Uh, and I won't uh, go into it in greater detail and say there are certain cases where, uh, what's, uh, where some features of a case uh, will determine uh, what the law applicable to it is. And in many cases with hospitals or doctors, the law of the case uh, is the procedures that the institution uses. And from their standpoint, that is the law. And from the standpoint of their employees, that is the law too, because if a person feels they're going to get in trouble, and there is a real fear of getting in trouble, of being deemed negligent and so on and so forth, and that fear makes it so easy to overreact and be ludicrously overprotective. Uh, but uh, if you're afraid that you're going to be disciplined or punished administratively by your boss, by your employer, uh, for respecting somebody's rights, then you're not going to do it because your self-interest is at stake and because, very frankly, it can't, it can't matter much to you what the law is in the world at large if the law in your workplace is different. Uh, and so that's a problem we always have to face. And what we have to do there is whenever we encounter a situation where an institutional policy or practice or regulation uh, is uh, adverse to fairness, adverse to justice, or let alone in violation of law, what we need to do in those cases, again, is to find out how to lobby uh, the organization, often at the highest level, to change it. And that's a long and slow process. Uh, I would say it's about equivalent to uh, the melting of glaciers. Except glaciers are melting pretty quickly these days, so maybe we have a better chance. So, uh, I, I, again, uh, I, want, I want to thank you, Ken, uh, Pam, very much for, uh, for sharing those memories with us and uh, for each of these stories and for your advocacy skills uh, and your successes and your perseverance in all these cases. I think maybe now we do want to throw it open to our, our audience, our fellow members, and, uh, and uh, discuss what's going on. And I apologize for that beeping in the background. It's some device of mine which will be stopped beeping in a minute or so, so I do apologize. But... Uh, Anyway, let's see who has to talk to us. So we currently have three raised hands, and area code 650, I have given you permission to talk. Yes, it's Roger. All right, I have a couple of things. One, I, I raised my hand actually before the panel started because I had a, had a, um, a, a point of privilege uh, before the uh, program item started. And uh, that's still relevant, I think. And that is that I wanted to say to the person who is chairing the meeting that I understand we have a, a terrible fire going on in Orange County, and I suggest that the chair express the concern of the organization to our Orange County friends. Um, but also, 
related to this uh, related to the subject here, I have found that um, they, the hospitals and doctors tell me that because I'm blind, I must have a bracelet that says falling risk on my wrist. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm a little concerned about this because I, I think that maybe I am becoming a falling risk. <clears throat> I'm 80 years old now and I have some issues that might possibly make me a falling risk, but I've been in the same situation with the, with the rails up around my bed and all that when there was no reason to have them. And I think that's a really important point to make. And thank you. I'm done. Thank you, Roger. As usual, you raise uh, two important points here. Number one, you corroborate, as I'm sure many of us, uh, many others of us could, the widespread use of these restraints based on these stereotypes. But you raise another issue, too, which is uh, one of intersectionality. What happens when stereotypes about blindness combine with stereotypes about age? And what happens further when we ourselves as individuals don't know if maybe, in this case, the seemingly overprotective measure uh, might not actually be justified, as you say. We always have the right not to object, of course, uh, 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 and uh, you exercise that right, I suspect. Uh, and if that made you feel more comfortable, that's fine. But uh, if you wanted to object and wanted to uh, parse what was disability-related and what was age-related, I would have asked the question, well, if I were 20 years younger, would you be having me wear this bracelet? If the answer is yes, then you have a pretty straightforward uh, blindness issue. If the answer is no, then you have a more complex issue because age has entered into it as well. But thank you for that illustration. And Debbie Kessler, you are next. Okay. Um, hi, all. Um, wow. Uh, when I started out, when I, rose my, when I raised my hand, I had one point, and now I have five, but I will on, I'll only talk about <laughs> one. Uh, I... The way this has turned out and gone um, raises a lot of good issues. One is there's there is a whole group of of blind people, as uh, in the baby boomer age that um, were uh, born blind, and so now like I'm seventy, and so um, my issues are more being old than blind. But then you know most people I understandably, I guess, um, but are not looking at, they look at blindness as part of my being old. And so their approach is different. No, my issue is being older, not my blindness. I've dealt with that. And my daughter and I got talking, of course, about the thing about getting up out of bed in the hospital and going to the bathroom. Well, if I know where it's at, I'm going to just, I would just get up and go. And um, she says, well, now, because my daughter just became an alarm for the bed. Okay. She, she just, she says now they have um, alarms on the bed to go off if you get out of bed. And so I just, I just told her, well, I just tell them I'm going to go to the bathroom, you know, whatever I'm going. But, the, the point is well taken about it's enforced that on the employees about uh, fall risks. It's really, they're scared of patients falling and being responsible. Thank you. Thank, thank you, Deborah. That's a very important point. And you raised 
the fact, uh, the distinction between uh, uh, the probably the majority of blind or seriously visually impaired uh, patients who hospitals see are people who have lost their sight in later life, and probably uh, their unconscious assumption is about blindness, whatever they are, are uh, are worsened or exacerbated by the belief that the person is uh, somewhat newly blinded and probably doesn't know very well how to cope with a blind person. As you say in your in your case, uh, as in as in Rogers, the issue was not coping with blindness, uh, which you've been doing uh, very adequately. Thank you for seventy years, and you wouldn't have lived as long if you hadn't been doing it. But uh, the issue was uh, was the effect upon uh, of age, and uh, I, I must admit I, I I find this in all kinds of situations too because I'm an older person myself. Uh, I used to be uh, I, I was always uh, I hope respectful of people who offered me help. And when I didn't need it, uh, I, I tried to uh, reject it in a civil and, and a respectful manner. And for the most part, I hope that I did. But as I get older and older and older, I'm more and more willing to accept help that I wouldn't have needed or wouldn't have wanted before. Uh, just because uh, I, I, I am a little less mobile. I am a little more feeble, uh, uh, frankly, than I was as a younger person. Uh, and uh, uh, all of us face in our lives as we deal with the medical system and as we deal with the world outside the medical system, all of us face these internal conflicts as to what we can do, what we should do, what we can't do, uh, uh, and our, our skill sets, our confidence levels, and our circumstances change so dramatically throughout the course of life that it's always a, a changing picture uh, and, a, and, a, and a moving target in terms of coming to terms with what we really need and what we can accept and let alone what we can do to resist if we don't want to accept. And next is Robert Acosta. Robert? Thank you very much. And I'll try to be brief if, if there's others there here. here. Um, first of all, I want to commend Steve for his legal advice and my dear friend Pam for pouring her heart out to us. That takes a lot of courage. If I may, though, I'd like to say some good things about Kaiser. I don't know if a lawyer gets into that uh, at all, but um, it was 08 when Pam had her issues. I believe it. I went through the disc with the FAP program. We got it in a month, Pam. It got a little better, but I know what you're talking about. Um, mm -hmm. But now, because I, I think I protested through the charts, they give you Braille material for after uh, visits, for visits, summary. You used to, they used to hand me a print sheet that went out the window, you know, now I get it in Braille because you, you lobby, as Steve said, and I think he's absolutely correct. I want to talk a little bit about my heart valve issue. Uh, we went to do that. I was not happy that the consent form had to be read by my reader. Uh, they, they didn't provide it in an accessible for, format. What are you going to do? I signed. I needed it or I might not be around here. Um, but I must say, remember, when they had rails around my bed, but they did around everybody in the heart area, in the ICU area, and all these places. So be cautious here. Don't just say they're doing it because I'm blind. I'll tell you another thing. The nurse said, when you go to the bathroom, I, I would like to take you. We don't want you to fall. We don't want you to lift anything. We don't want you. You're sick in there, but you have to make that judgment call. And um, I have had some blind friends who said, I'm ready to sue. I'm looking for a reason. And um, so I had rails. So if I'm less Less of if I'm a coward, that's what I did. I said it off a couple of times. I didn't mean to. But I want to talk <laughs> about the power of the doctor. 
Um, well, first, when they read the instructions to go home, the nurse said, why am I doing this? I said, madam, I'm blind. There's no reader at home. You got to read it. And she kept saying, why am I doing this? So I protested. And they wrote me. I don't know if they did. They said she received appropriate training. She reads everything that a blind person wants read. So that's all I know about it. I didn't go see the nurse again. Last thing, I had to have warfarin every day, if you know what that is, blood thinner. And they were sending a guy out due to my doctor. The doctors in Kaiser and other places have a lot of power. And he came, but then one day he said, oh, that's it. It's over. I can't come anymore. Well, I called my doctor. And he was there the next couple of days when he had to be. So they came to my home because I, I didn't want to go to Woodland Hills. So I want to commend structured negotiation. Lainey Feingold and Megan and the lawyers negotiated with Kaiser as well. So yes, as with bad that Pam described, there's also good. Can they do better? Of course they can. Thank you very much. I, I, I have a lot of respect for Kaiser. Kaiser is the largest medical HMO Medical Service in the state of California. And I would not have gone back to Kaiser if I didn't respect Kaiser. I have a wonderful physician um, here in Woodland Hills who I call if, and she's been my physician since Ken and I moved out to the Valley for 12 years now. And um, she understands all my aches and pains and woes and woes. And, um, but you still need, the strongest thing we have is our mouth and our ability to advocate for ourselves and our ability to think. Um, there were times when, when I had when I went into the hospital for a kidney stone and I wanted to get up and go to the bathroom and they said, Well, you can't walk by yourself and I said, Really? I can't. So I put they put some I said, Let's go, I need to go to the bathroom. Well, no, I got up and they took me to the bathroom and they had the alarm on. I said, You better turn the alarm on before off before I get out of this bed or it's gonna go off. Well, how did you know it was on? I said, I'm blind and I'm, and I'm laying in this bed. You guys think I can't walk by myself. You just said that. So, yes, there are some problems. And, yes, we have structured negotiation. But overall, we, we, have the, we have the medical system we have because we've all figured out a way to work within that system. And that's what we have to all figure out, a way to work within the system that we have. Bob, thank you, Pam. Bob, a couple of things. Uh, no, no, number one, I think that, uh, again, you raise the question of the subtle and complex interaction between disability and illness, uh, because uh, although they're different, they sometimes occur together. Uh, uh, secondly, so far as my legal advice is concerned, I want to assure you that I charge no fee and you get what you pay for. Uh, be, be that as it may, I think that uh, you, you, you raise uh, a, a number of good questions and uh, uh, essentially, uh, I think that we have to think about uh, ways to get these institutions to have a little more flexibility uh, and to uh, recognize individuality. You hear more and more about patient-centered medicine, about individualizing treatment, things of that nature. And these are the more and more the watchwords of the people who set medical policy in this country. But they're not the watchwords of the day-to-day uh, uh, implementation of that policy or of the ways that individuals experiencing it uh, experience it on a day-to-day level. And uh, this involves problems that go far beyond uh, our sphere of, of expertise or our experience uh, and really go to fundamental problems with the medical system as it affects everyone. Uh, and uh, I, I see no particular solution to those problems. I just hope that we can make sure those problems are no worse for us than for anyone else. 
Next, we have Jordan. Hi. Um, I had a question. How can we lobby uh, Loma Linda University to provide um, patient summaries in Braille? Well, that's a good question. Uh, I had that problem, as I say, when I was hospitalized. Oh, and I want to also emphasize, by the way, that uh, just in response to Bob's concern, no one is, is being critical of Kaiser here. Uh, we happen to be, have mentioned Kaiser because uh, Pam's experience uh, was with Kaiser, but Kaiser is used here only as an illustration. It would not be very different anywhere else, the good or the bad. It would be, in all likelihood, be about the same with any managed care system, and managed care is increasingly becoming the means through which uh, medical care and medical services are provided. Uh, so I really want to emphasize that. There's no, no criticism uh, intended of, of Kaiser uh, at all. Uh, Jordan's question is a good one. And again, this goes back to procedures. Uh, if we are dealing with a hospital system or a medical care system, be it Kaiser or any of a number of others that we could name, uh, the trick is to uh, try to get in touch with them at the highest level, their ADA coordinator perhaps, even the CEO, the general counsel, uh, and to say, well, look, there are certain documents that you know you're going to be preparing for people on a regular basis. Everyone who is hospitalized receives discharge instructions when they leave. Uh, everyone who is going to get a certain test uh, receives preparation information when they're going to leave uh, or in advance of doing the test. So well, you know that uh, a certain kind of document is going to be provided for every person in a particular category. Why don't you take steps to make sure that that document is available in the variety of accessible forms that people need. Uh, uh, if you, you know that you're going to have people with hearing impairments in your hospital, so you make arrangements either for, uh, either for uh, captioners or for, or for real-time real, real -time captioning or there are disputes over what kind of captioning works, uh, but you certainly uh, uh, work for ca on captioning and you work on uh, interpreters, uh, ASL interpreters either uh, in person or via Zoom or otherwise. Uh, you know it's going to happen. You have to be prepared for it. Same thing here. The problem is there are so few of us. So it's probably uh, the, the average hospital ADA coordinator, uh, even the large system ADA coordinator, could work 20 years and get maybe five requests for Braille. So it's not going to be at the top of their to-do list. We have to make sure, therefore, that it gets done in advance of the individual request, whether the methods and procedures exist for getting it done quickly. Uh, and as you say, Bob, structured negotiation is an invaluable tool for getting that kind of thing done. Uh, you mentioned the in, in, invaluable work that, that was done by Lainey uh, and uh, her colleagues uh, uh, and other members of our, of our uh, wonderful legal community uh, with Kaiser. Interestingly enough, though, an issue that I've been concerned about, and it occurs not only in healthcare, but otherwise, is what happens when the settlement agreements lapse? Uh, these settlement agreements, I think the one for Kaiser, I'm guessing it was for three years, maybe it was for five, maybe it was for two and a half, they're typically three years, though. And uh, what happens when they lapse? What can we do to assure that there's continuity, that there's follow-through? What kind of institutional memory do these organizations have? What kind of systems change uh, has occurred and has become embedded in the, organizational, in the organization's uh, uh, collective DNA, so to speak, during the period of time that the settlement agreement was in effect? We're facing these issues now, not only in healthcare, but in employment, in education especially, and in every other sector where these settlement agreements have done so well for us in terms of accessibility, but uh, they always run out. And law by contract, is, an, as I call it, is an inherently unstable thing. 
All right, next we have Alan. I, to the panel, I had a uh, procedure done uh, four years ago, and the documents was in the PDF, getting back to documents. Well, there again, uh, the issue you're raising is, I guess, who's responsible for converting the PDF into an accessible format? Uh, uh, depending on what computer skills you have, you could do it, you could do it, uh, or if you don't have the skills you, or the technology, then maybe you couldn't. But the question is, it shouldn't really, I think, have to be your responsibility. Anymore, there would be the responsibility of a person who speaks only language A uh, to uh, uh, find some way to translate a document that they received in language B. Uh, I think that uh, it should not be a problem. Uh, now, the reason, the interesting point is this. Uh, institutions do not want to convert materials out of PDF because they're afraid that once they get converted, they'll be changed. Yes. And the advantage to them of PDF is there's no possibility of the document being changed or altered in ways which, which they don't want or which could raise questions as to what they actually said. Uh, so that's a complexity, but uh, as I say, it, if, if something you, you can do or have someone you trust uh, yes. uh, do for you. That's asked, I'm sorry to interrupt. I'm, uh, the reason why I asked because I was able to read the documents myself because I have a computer. But my brother does not use a computer, and that's why I'm raising the question, though. Right. Well, and that question is perfectly, is perfectly clear. Now, here we have the problem. Nowadays, uh, most uh, uh, medical information that we share with our practitioners, our providers, whether they share with us, uh, goes via these portals, these uh, health, uh, health records portals. Uh, and uh, they're inaccessible in many cases. That's a problem for technology users. But as you say, for a non-technology user, uh, the inaccessibility is almost beside the point. Doesn't matter if it's accessible or not. If I if I have, if I have a computer, it's like saying uh, uh, it's too bad the it's too bad the subways are slow. But it doesn't really matter to me because I live in an area where there's no subways. Uh, that's a problem. And in a case like that, I think you have to ask generally, what do you do for people who do not have computers? What provision do you have for making documents uh, information that they contain accessible and available to people who don't? have any means of gaining access to your portal? And that's a broader question. Uh, the secondary question, if they have none, then you have to think about, uh, again, try to get them to develop a procedure because a lot of their patients are going to be uh, not necessarily technology users, uh, particularly older people uh, or people who are poor who don't have access to the Internet because of, they live in areas that don't have the coverage or because they can't afford the, the, the fees, et cetera, et cetera. So uh, this is a broader question. The subsidiary question is, once they establish uh, some policy for making documents available to people who don't have technology, then the question becomes, what do you do about accessibility? Because you're obviously not going to just give me a print, a print document uh, and, uh, and tell me I'm on my own to read it. Uh, you wouldn't do that for other people. As I said, you wouldn't do it in a language context. Why would you do it in the disability context? And our final raise hand for the moment, Deb, once again. Okay, so my question is then in, in, in terms of the, what was decided legally and what information is provided per, per the clients. Um, are they, um, is it broad enough to cover when there are changes in technology that happen rather quickly at, for places like Kaiser to update? Um, what they have available to provide adequate services. 
because language, language, you always, you know, hey, usually speak the same language in that. But um, PDFs now is is the thing. But the things like uh, Kaiser has gone from um, the tags, oh, script talk. Now they have script talk. And I've run into some pharmacies where they say, well, it'll take us a week before the person who does works the machine to make the labels for you to provide that label. And where mm -hmm. other, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah, that's exactly what I told them. And the other pharmacies, I've had them look, see me in line. And the person who does that, I mean, because they don't have everybody do it. I understand that. But the person, he's, they're always there. They always say hi to me by name before I even show up on the register that I'm going to pick up a prescription, you know. So go ahead. Yes. Go they for can't it, Pam. do that, right? <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay, I'm sorry. But I was like, uh -uh, no, no, no. Uh -uh. Because they, every, from what I understand, talking to the pharmacist at the Porter Ranch Kaiser, every yeah. pharmacist has to know how to use and make the script talk labels. Every pharmacist. Oh, because really? the main pharmacist, yes, every pharmacist okay. who works in that pharmacy has to know how to use Scriptalk and make the labels for you. Because they, from what I understand at the Porter Ranch Pharmacy, when I, because I had a problem, one of the pharmacists was at lunch, the main one was at lunch, and he, the other one was like, well, I don't know how to do it. And I said, really? Yeah. Well, I need this medication on the Scriptalk label. Well, I don't know if I can do it. And when she came back and he, I told her what was said, because I wouldn't accept the medication and I would not leave. And she said, oh, no, 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 no. We need to teach you how to use it because every pharmacist in this building needs to know how to use Scriptalk. And she, when I talked to her again, because understand, I, these pharmacists I knew at the other pharmacy that closed, and they just opened this facility like yeah. a couple of years ago. And so what I'm understanding is what she told me is she said every Kaiser pharmacist in the southern region, because they don't know what goes on in the north, but they do know what goes on down here, has to know how to make a script talk label. And that in the, to say, no, no, we don't know how, or we don't have anybody to do it, it's going to take a week, is unacceptable. They need to do it that day and when you request it. And if you need it on the same medication every time, if the doctor changes it, who's to say the doctor has not changed your prescription? They need to do it. And every pharmacist, from what I understand, every pharmacist needs to know how to use the machine to do script talk labels. Very good. I, I uh, was the same prescription twice that they did this to me. And when I told them, uh, when I I had put my order in a week in advance anyway, and when it mm -hmm. I went to pick it up and they they said it was going to be a week for the label, I says, well, I'm going to go above. I'm going to have to talk to somebody else in regards to this. And they called me an hour later that afternoon to say that my prescription was ready. And I asked them right then. I said, um, does that include the label? I didn't. I didn't want to walk over there and have to walk a mile and then have to and walk home um, and be without my prescription. So they took mm -hmm. care of it. But that's good. That's better than what I ex expected from them in terms of I just figured, hey, if they have one person that's there, that there's always somebody there to do it. That would have been fine by me, too. So good news. Thank you.
Thank All you. All right, we are 52 minutes past the hour, and Frank, you are next. Hang on, I just want to uh, uh, add to what Pam has already said. Actually, I want to say that if I ever need an advocate, I'm going to retain Pam to to to, to the job. <laughs> Deborah, you raise a, an interesting point. Uh, 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 when we get health care, uh, it's always provided not by one person, but by dozens of people. Just think of any of any sequence from uh, office appointment to meeting with the doctor to prescription to prescription filling to getting uh, to and from the pharmacy if need be to getting to and from tests if need be to prepping for the tests. So the number of people involved uh, can be legion, uh, and if that system breaks down anywhere along the way. If one person uh, is recalcitrant or doesn't know what they're doing or doesn't understand or is out, or is out to lunch, literally or figuratively, uh, if, if that system breaks down the whole chain, it's, it's like a supply chain. We've been hearing so much lately about the reason for inflation is because supply chains are disrupted. Well, this is a services supply chain. And if it gets uh, broken or slowed to a point, it can have all kinds of ramifications. The law can only, can only address that. In a, in a, broadly speaking, again, in terms of uh, basic fundamental principles that organizations have to ad- adhere to. But when it comes to dealing with an individual who is not complying with procedures or not acting responsibly or sensibly, it does usually come down to a case of individual advocacy. This is Sarah. Real quick, Frank, you're going to be our last question, and then we need to go ahead and wrap up Pam and Steve. Go for it, Frank. Sorry. Okay, a quick suggestion since, since getting documents in accessible formats is really important is that there's some things that we can do before we get sick in that regard. Uh, first off, I would encourage each of us to reach out to your blindness service provider to get you in touch with a competent uh, producer of accessible documents, whether that's a braille transcriber or somebody who can get PDF documents into accessible formats. And then what I would encourage you to do is to get that document person connected up with the appropriate people, say your ADA coordinator at your health provider, so that they actually have mm-hmm. a resource that they can turn to, to get documents produced in accessible format. So that then when you ask for those things, they, your, the ADA, you know, the, the, your health care providers have a resource to turn to, to get that done. Frank, that's very good advice. I just want to mention that's one respect in which HIPAA sometimes works against us. I've heard of cases uh, where the, a person was identified, for example, as a Braille transcriber uh, or as a, uh, a, a renderer of large, of large print, but the healthcare organization refused to deal with them because they weren't uh, authorized medical personnel with the meaning of HIPAA. So sometimes they're going to demand of you, uh, and you may even offer up front a waiver to allow the documents to be shared with that person who you've identified and you've put them in touch with. So ask them if they're going to need a waiver for that, and if so, execute it in advance. Okay, Sarah said we're all, we got to wrap it up. So all I want to say is this, when you're dealing with your medical care, whether you're dealing with yours or a spouse or a family member, remember that you have avenues you can go to if you're having a problem, patient advocate, a social worker, um, member services, any, and it doesn't have to be, I'm not talking about just Kaiser, but I'm talking about any medical care, any medical services that you need. You can find a way to do it. You can call member services and they can tell you who you can contact. You can file complaints through member services or any other complaint complaint system. But 
if you don't advocate for yourself, you you have made the mis- you are making a mistake. Um, p- people need to learn to advocate for themselves. If it's very important because if you are if you live by yourself, then who's going to take care of it for you? And um, since I do, I did. But um, it's important, and and I just think you get better health care that way if you if you can. And understand this. I'm gonna say this, and this is my favorite saying. Doctors, nurses, hospitalists, everybody puts their pants on the same way you do, one leg at a time. There's no need to be afraid of them. Even if they try to intimidate you, just talk to them like you would talk to anybody else and explain to them what you need done. Um, and and they will help you. I was in the medical field for 30 years before I went blind. It isn't just, just talk to them like you would talk to anyone else. Well, uh, my only takeaway is if you have a problem, call Pam. But, but seriously, thank you all very much uh, for your questions and for your interest. And uh, and uh, uh, thank thank you, Deb, for facilitating. And uh, Pam, it's been a great pleasure to work with you. Thank you, Steve. It was with you, too. And Bye. Steve and Pam, I just have to thank you guys so much. And, and, you know, Steve, what you said right there is really true because Pam has helped me with my health care advocacy. So... If you guys need help, reach out and, you know, let's let's all work together to um, empower each other to be great advocates. So thank you very much, guys. And thank you, I, Oh, thank you, Steve. You guys are awesome. All right. So now I'm going to hand it off to another Steve from CCB, Mr. Steve Bauer, who's going to introduce our next topic. Steve Bauer, are you around? I am here. And thank you, Sarah. Good morning, everybody. Got a great group of folks here, uh, almost 50 on Zoom, and have no idea how many are listening on uh, ACB Media, but great to have everybody along with us. Um, As we navigate the future together, CCB relies on our incredible advocacy of our members. That's been proven in the last hour and also uh, last night. And we also rely on the advocacy of of our partners, folks who work with us. And our next speaker is certainly one of those. Stuart Seaborn is... uh, been involved with a number of issues with CCB. Stewart's Managing Director of Litigation at Disability Rights Advocates. Uh, he joined DRA in 2011 and has been advocating in the public interest for over 20 years. He specializes in systemic litigation on behalf of persons with disabilities and has achieved multiple national precedents on matters of first impression in the area of disability rights. In one example, uh, Disabled in Action versus Board of Elections, Mr. Seaborn secured the first federal appellate decision to hold that under the Americans with Disabilities Act, election officials must provide voters with disabilities the same private and independent voting experience they provide to non-disabled voters. He was also lead counsel in legal services versus versus prisoners with children. Uh, I'm sorry, uh, legal counsel uh, in uh, legal services for Prisoners with Children versus Ahern, which resulted in a court enforceable settlement agreement to provide disability-based accommodations to persons housed in one of the largest county jail systems in California. And Ochoa versus City of Long Beach, a class action resulting in the installation and improvement of thousands of curb ramps for persons who use wheelchairs. Mr. Seaborn has also uh, is also an adjunct professor at UC Hastings School of Law. In addition to his work with DRA, 
He has a solo civil rights practice and worked as a litigator at Disability Rights California. He received his law degree from UCLA School of Law in 1998 and his BA from UC Berkeley in 1995. So amazing that we have uh, folks like this on our team here at CCB. Stuart, thanks for all you do. And he's going to talk to us today about kiosks, which uh, we see in medical facilities and also in fast food restaurants and lots of other places. Uh, Stuart, uh, thanks for joining us and uh, looking forward to hearing what you have to tell us. Thank you uh, for that introduction, Steve. I, I, I've forgotten about a lot of that stuff over the last 20 years, so it's good to hear it. Uh, as you mentioned, I'm here to discuss kiosk accessibility. And I, can I actually get a showing? I can't, uh, obviously can't tell who's on, on the, the call. Uh, do folks have a sense of what I'm talking about when I mention the word kiosk? I want to make sure we're talking about the same thing, because kiosks uh, I, you know, when I when I first started doing this work, I thought about that. You know, when I would get my coffee outside Bart, there was a person in a there was an actual person in a kiosk where I would I would get co- up my coffee and sometimes a paper. And that uh, that definition or that that term in terms of of the ADA and disability work is is much broader. So I just want to make get a sense. Can folks tell me? Uh, in and I don't I don't know how we do this on on Zoom, but just you know to get a sense of what people think of when I mentioned the word kiosk. Stephanie Watts, you may speak. Good morning. When I think of kiosk, I think of, um, I guess you would call it a, I I would call it a a station um, in terms of orientation, a station, something you walk up to in an airport um, to um, interact with so you can um, print a boarding pass or in a restaurant, you walk up to it to, um, place your order. Um, and anyway, that's my limited uh, thinking on what a kiosk is. Thank you. Charlene Ornelas, you're next. I think of a kiosk as being many shapes and many places, but it's somewhere where you walk up instead of interacting with a person, you interact with um, technology. That's remarkably helpful. I'll take one more, uh, and and then we'll. You're 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 actually hitting what I what I wanted to discuss, but I'll take I'll take Jessica, one more. Jessica, you are last. Hi, good morning. So, what I think of a kiosk is an open type of little cart that is outside, maybe the mall or inside the mall, or that's just kind of like open. Um, you can also see them at Disneyland when you buy a churro. Those little carts. That would be a kiosk. Uh, But now we're starting to see kiosks inside Panera with the computerized how to get your coffee instead. Um, So that's what I'm thinking about kiosks now. These little tiny corners of restaurants or fast food places where you can just use an iPad, get get the things you need, and then just get out without even having any human interaction. So that that is... The you, you guys hit on, on the kind of the three things I wanted to mention. So our work with kiosk accessibility has really involved the self-service economy. So moving kind of away from the person that used to sell me my coffee outside the BART station uh, in, you know, in, in essentially like a, a kiosk shelter situation to things where people have the freedom uh, to not have to interact with somebody to do things uh, essentially at the time in the way they want it. Um, one of the classic examples, you know, we, we litigated a case involving movie rental kiosks we're going to talk about in a second, 
Uh, but I, I, you know, I may want like romantic comedies and I don't want the person at the video store I, you know, to, to know that I like romantic comedies. And I had the freedom to go, you know, independently, uh, you know, browse and select something at my leisure. And it really is a, a sense that, the, that we had um, starting in about 2011, that the self-service economy was providing a whole range of opportunities for, for you know, people with and without disabilities but uh, our, our particular concern was that the blind community was being left behind because a lot of the self-service technology didn't have things like tactile input or audio output. And uh, that's really how we, we got involved in this. And I wanted to share, going back to the, the video rental kiosk. So uh, I, I, had, I started in this work at uh, doing, um, just answering the phones doing what's now essentially paralegal work at DRA in 1995 ended up going to law school. They, they kind of recommended I go to law school and, and doing a whole bunch of other work, including antitrust work and labor law and stuff that does, doesn't relate to this for a while. But I came back to disability work uh, at Disability Rights California in 2002 and bounced around the state with them and ended up working with a blind attorney in Sacramento who's now no longer living in California named Will Shell. And we got a bunch of complaints. Uh, and this was right about the time that the the movie rental kiosks were, um, you know, were kind of take, you know, being we were seeing them in supermarkets, we were seeing them uh, in in places like malls, uh, outside 7-Elevens, etc. And we started getting complaints uh, from uh, a lot of people about the the accessibility and wheelchair users, but also from from blind people. And I remember going to the first meeting, uh, and there were two two things that kind of came up uh, in the discussion. That you know, I didn't didn't think we'd have to be talking about. One is there was a question as to you know what are these things and are they even covered by the law? And that was you know that was a hurdle we had we had to address. And thankfully, over over the last you know 15, 20 years, there's plenty of ways we can address that. And the second thing that surprised me uh, with the video rental kiosks is, is that the you know even even some of the expert witnesses and the uh, you know the, the the manufacturers and and the retailers had questions about you know, do, do blind people actually watch movies? And that, you know, having to kind of address both of those, you know, this, that's an educational hurdle and the legal hurdle, we realized that we had to, we really wanted to start dedicating time to this kind of work. And it, it was it was fortuitous for me because I started working with folks at DRA on the kiosk issue with people like Larry Paradis and Mike Nunez. And I ended up moving to DRA to work at DRA full-time. So that, that the kiosk work actually was a nice bridge for me. Uh, and it, it it kind of helped us address some of these self-service issues. And really, as at, at DRA, we've had a focus uh, on new technologies and making sure that new technologies do not leave uh, the disability community and in particular the blind community behind. And even before that, I think it's important to talk about some history before we get to uh, where things stand today with kiosk accessibility. And again, I'm, I'm referring, when I say kiosk, I'm referring to the kind of self-service technology broadly. Um, and it includes some of the things that you mentioned just now, things like restaurant ordering devices, uh, transit uh, um, uh, kiosks, et cetera, uh, not limited to uh, what you know physically we think of as a kiosk. And uh, we actually, in our, in our work and our thinking to help us uh, particularly assess what coverage exists under the law? We we start with the talking ATMs that a lot of folks here, you know, a lot of people at CCB actually worked on you know, 20 years ago or 20 plus years ago, and the advocacy behind those and they that that essentially paved the way for kiosk accessibility. Uh, people um, 
members of CCB, uh, as well as folks like Lainey Feingold and Linda Dardarian, working uh, with, with advocates, but also through structured negotiations, working with large corporate banking entities, such as uh, Bank of America and Wells Fargo, uh, to really kind of, uh, without actually without having to get court orders, to um, get these, you know, these uh, large corporate entities to buy into the technology and the development of technology so that there would be, at minimum, tactile input and audio out- output for, for ATM machines. And the momentum was in full swing. That's, uh, you know, those, that, that we're talking about 20 years ago. Moving into, you know, 2010 with the access board and that, and, you know, the, the, the idea was that, that the at level of access should advance uh, as technology advances, and and fortunately there was it was a big technology boom during that time period, and the the Access Board and later the Department of Justice issued regulations uh, and implemented them at the federal level, requiring for ATM machines and fare machines again minim- the minimum of tactile input and audio output, and that was a real boon to us at the time because we could see that that you know ATMs were essentially the, one of the first in the banking industry, that was one of the first self-service technologies. And we could really see the idea that there was there might be a way to expand this concept to kind of the boom in self-service technology that was helping, that was, was happening in other industries. And at the time, the, the, the regulations were issued, and for those of you who want to look this up, um, certainly you can talk to me, it's, this is at section 707 of the ADA's uh, architectural guidelines or the, or the ADAG standards. Uh, for um, ATMs and fare machines. Fare machines are are like transit fare machines, things that you would find at say BART, Muni, or Sacramento Regional Transit. And that was that was a, a kind of momentous time for us because we were, you know, at the same time we were getting those regulations, we were seeing the 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 growth of the self-service industry uh, all over. And um, Unfortunately, we were seeing that the uh, particularly touchscreen technologies were being implemented without the input of the blind community. And so our hope was to use some of the growth in the, in the law and regulation that had come out of this, this kind of ATM uh, structured negotiation advocacy to, to push for more requirements for other kinds of self-service technology and kiosks. And I, there, there was a lot of momentum then, and there has been a lot of uh, progress. But I, I will say it, it was the growth wasn't as linear as we expected. So it is it is uh, it's kind of, today we've, we're left with kind of a kind of a patchwork and piecemeal uh, set of regulations and coverage of kiosks. But I do think there is uh, reason to be optimistic because with this patchwork network, you're probably going to find some sort of hook if you have a, a, a kiosk or a piece of self-service technology that is inaccessible to uh, people who are blind or have low vision. Um, I wish that um, accessibility was being built in more at the front end because it's always more difficult to go after the fact and fix it. But there are a lot of legal hooks available, even, even with this kind of patchwork set of regulations. And I wanna go over some of them today. Uh, the first thing I want to talk about is kiosks operated by government entities. That's, you know, um, w- one of the, the classic examples is we, we think of as one of our uh, cases on the East Coast. Uh, that there was a, a, a set of kiosks under the guise of an organization called Link New York City or Link NYC. Uh, and these were informational kiosks. So for, for in tourist areas, for example, providing information about tourist sites, about public transportation, 
uh, some advertisements, things like, you know, where, where to get a place to stay, um, and also things that, that were helpful to not just the tourists, but to, to everyday New Yorkers, like, you know, uh, having a jack to charge your phone, et cetera. And one of the benefits of the, these, these kind of kiosks being uh, both, both operated and under the responsibility of public entities, and the, the Link NYC, although it was a private vendor that had, had created and was tasked with operation the kiosks, it was under the guise of the municipal government of New York City, that uh, the, there's no, there was no real question about coverage. So public entities... Uh, kiosks are essentially they're they're a program service or activity of the government entity, uh, so state, county, city, etc., or public transit entities, and they are covered by Title II of the ADA. There's no question that those entities are covered. Uh, so think you know not, not only the Link NYC uh, kiosks where we we filed a, a, a case in court, uh, working at, at that point is working with some of the um, National Federation of the Blind affiliates and their council. Uh, and ended up getting a settlement because there was just no question about about coverage, uh, and there, the the settlement included things like screen navigation with screen readers and, and tactile input, etc. Uh, but there's there simply just was no question that that an, uh, a kiosk operated by a public entity is is covered, um, and that's that that applies as I said to transit kiosks such as as BART, um, MTA, and and regional transit. Uh, so that that's a good hook um, for anything that is operated by a, a government entity, whether it's a state, whether it's a county, a municipality, or a public transit entity. I brought I decided to bring up the Link NYC kiosks because we ha- are seeing rumblings throughout California that public entities, uh, particularly urban centers, are starting to use this idea of public information centers with touchscreens. We saw one published. Uh, I don't know if it's going to be when it's going to be rolled out in the city of Oakland, uh, and we we are seeing them in other uh, urban centers where uh, usually with some private monies, but also with public monies, uh, cities are having these these kind of public information touchscreens, uh, and unfortunately some of them um, are inaccessible. So we're we're kind of keeping watch on that, but there is no question that those are covered. And um, that there is at least, uh, while there, there aren't technical standards as of yet, there's at least a requirement uh, for meaningful access. Uh, say, essentially, the, the, the level of access should be as close as possible to that of the sighted user, which uh, it means independent uh, operation and ability to browse, and which and for us in most cases means the, the tactile input and audio output uh, for controls. I did want to mention. The, the federal government requirements, I think a lot of you are probably familiar with Section 508 of the Rehabilitation Act. That applies to government uh, kiosks operated by the, by the federal government or kiosks where there is federal money involved. And that has benefited us tremendously, partially because there are so many cities and counties when it comes to things like public infrastructure, transportation, et cetera, that receive federal funding. So you can automatically apply the hook of Section 508. And there are, they have what they call um, accessible technology requirements. And they're not, and this this is going to be a theme throughout this discussion today. There aren't many specific technical requirements. So it's not going to tell you like what kind of screen reader or what, you know, whether it has to be, you know, definitely a keypad or some other form of, of tactile input, or even there may be some variations in keypads. So there's a little bit of a, um, 
a little bit of murkiness in terms of what technical standards will apply, but generally to be considered accessible under 508, which again, it applies to federal entities or any entities receiving federal funds, and that's a lot, particularly in, in the area of transit and city and county government when it comes to their infrastructure. And those, those kiosks must at minimum have some sort of audio output, often audio jacks, uh, tactically discernible input and controls, and some sort of speech output. Oftentimes they're, they're integrated with, with screen reader software. Um, and I would say if you, if you encounter a, what, what, what appears to be a publicly funded kiosk, uh, I would, you know, and, and it's not accessible. That's a real problem. And, and certainly I, I, you could let us know because it, it, um, these, these uh, requirements have been in existence for some time and they should at least be uh, independently operational by folks uh, who are blind or have low vision. And 508 is also uh, wonderful in many ways because the state of California has adopted the requirements of Section 508 under, under the California Government Code for state entities and entities receiving state funding. So even if there's no federal funding involved, there are plenty of, of, of state-funded uh, entities that, that um, have uh, should have accessible or required to have accessible technology. Um, one of the, the, the areas we've looked at is, is healthcare, and I'll talk about that in a second, but any anytime there's any, whether it's, it's state uh, Department of Healthcare Services money at the state level, whether it's Medicaid or Medi-Cal funding or Medicare funding at the federal level, it's going to be covered, uh, at least it has to meet the requirements of 508, whether it's because there are federal monies involved or, or state monies. So I would, I would you know, it, it just in terms of a rule of thumb, if it's a if it's government uh, of any kind, or even if it's something that that's operated by a private vendor, but there's government money, whether it's state or federal involved, there's going to be some sort of in, independently operational requirement that's likely going to require both tactile input and audio output. Uh, and I would say if you're if 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 you're hearing about things in development or you're, you're seeing any any self-service technology along those lines, whether it's you know a municipal government putting it out there whether it's healthcare, whether it's a, a, a you know, transit operator, let us know because there is going to be at least some sort of requirement we can hang our hat on due, due to uh, whether it's Title II of the ADA, whether it's Section 508 or the adoption of Section 508 by, by the state of California for entities that are funded with state monies. So that, that brings us to the question of private businesses. I'm going to, I'm going to pause for a second to see if anybody has any, any question about the, the government kiosks uh, before we move on to the private businesses. Pedro, you have been given permission to talk. But, um, my question is, um, uh, what about kiosks at airports? I haven't flown since prior to uh, COVID, but I will be doing so soon. And I'm wondering, are they required to be uh, accessible at the airports? So um, that's, that's a, it's a good transition to discussing uh, moving on from uh, government kiosks to some of the, the private or, or, or kind of private public crossover kiosks. And one of those, one of the categories that, that we're going to discuss, and I, I'll, I'll just discuss it now, is airline or airport kiosks. And I just wanted to distinguish between the two. If there's, if there's a kiosk in the airport that is not an airlines kiosk, if it's something with general information. So I can think of, uh, you know, we had a case involving the Sacramento airport and the areas within the airport that were not controlled by the airlines. So uh, when you enter, you know, when you enter the airport, 
um, in the, 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 the kind of waiting areas, et cetera, um, even in, in the ticketing areas, uh, those where, where you can argue it's controlled by the airport, then that um, you know, would be something that is covered by the Americans with Disabilities Act. Uh, so for example, there are um, nowadays there, I think there, one of the companies is called Clear. There are several other companies that um, operate um, some of the screening. Uh, we've heard rumblings of kiosk-based screening on the horizon. And my my argument, if that, you know, if, if there's if there's a, an accessibility problem, would be um, those are probably part of the airport structure. They're within the airport and they're probably going to be covered uh, by the ADA. Uh, bringing in the government entity who runs the airport and having that be considered a service uh, of the of the airport and thus a service of the government entity. So that's one area. And and if it's a service of the airport as a, as the government entity, so I think you know that the Sacramento County runs the Sacramento Airport, um, the Port Authority in the Bay Area runs the Oakland Airport, et cetera. We we would we would be able to look to them to advocate for having those kiosks accessible. I want to separate that from airline kiosks, and there's been a, just a, a mess probably for at least um, you know, 12 or 13 years. There's been uh, there's been litigation and and debate about uh, whether the ADA even applies to uh, airline kiosks, and the short answer is no, it doesn't. Uh, the the airlines themselves are governed by the Air Carrier Access Act. Uh, which is a separate statute from the ADA. It's enforced by the Department of Transportation and the Federal Transportation Administration, which has its own set of regulations. And one one positive is that the regulations technically do require similar accessibility to Section 508. So there has to be some form of independent way to operate the kiosk for folks who are blind or have low vision. The problem is, well, the two problems, one is uh, there's no private right of action. So uh, say you, you called me and you know you went, I'm just going to pick on Alaska Airlines because I, 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 I've um, talked about them recently and they're fresh in the mind. But say, say you called me and said, I went, you know, I went to Oakland Airport and I tried to use the kiosk at, uh, that, that was you know, in front of Alaska Airlines to get to, you know, to whether to check my bag or whatever it is. And it was inaccessible, or the or maybe it was it was an accessible machine, but it wasn't it wasn't maintained, it wasn't working. I could not represent you on a claim in court uh, against Alaska Airlines. I would have to refer you to an administrative complaint with the Department of Transportation and the FTA. And they do have so they have the power that you know the government regulators have the power to issue enforcement orders. But what we've seen uh, is two things. One is the regulations gave the public entities, uh, sorry, gave the airlines 10 years to comply with the accessibility uh, requirements for kiosks. And then even with, with that 10 years, I think is actually coming up um, soon. It may have already passed. I think we're on the cusp of the 10 years. But the problem is that there are negotiations and settlement agreements with airlines who said they couldn't do it. And so there are some uh, agreements, I think one of them is ANA Airlines, where uh, even now <clears throat> there's, they've gotten an extension. So um, the, the po- the, I'll throw out the positive. The positive is that there are regulations and they kind of mirror the Section 508 requirements that there's got to be the kind of independent operation so that the, the blind or low vision user has, has, has access to independent operation for those same functions that the sighted user does. But it's going to be slow in terms of enforcement. 
And um, the other thing is like, you know, advocacy groups like ourselves, who we consider partners of, of, of CCB in, in our ability to take these things on are going to be less able to do anything because uh, the, you know, the biggest tool we have is litigation and that has been removed from us, uh, unfortunately. So that that's the, that's airports. Um, uh, but if it's, if it's a general informational kiosk or, or, you know, I, I would probably argue some of the screening where the screening is not specific to a particular airline, uh, mm-hmm. there, there would be an argument that would be covered by these um, federal government or, or local government requirements. Does that, does that answer the question? My question was answered. Thank you very much. So um I'm going to move away from government entity kiosk. And I, the, the last thing I'll say about those is that it, it, we, we feel pretty good about coverage of government kiosks with the, this, including airports, with the exception of what's run by the airlines. And I would say if you get an airline issue, I'd be happy to talk about it. Uh, particularly, there, there are some techniques we've learned from folks who've done the administrative complaints uh, in terms of what gets the, the regulator's attention. Uh, so we'd be happy to talk about that, but it is it is a difficulty for us because we don't have the power ourselves to do the represent, representation in court, uh, and that's been a bit of a frustration. I do want to talk about private businesses that have kiosks because that's an area where there's been a mixed bag of results of litigation, and I want to give you the best information we have to date so that uh, if you encounter a private business's kiosk, you at least know where things stand in terms of coverage and requirements um, so the, 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 sh- the short way to start with private businesses is that in, in terms of the federal law with the ADA, private businesses that open themselves up to the public are covered by Title III of the ADA. Unfortunately, Title III was written at a time, uh, I'm sure you've heard uh, much discussion about the internet and mobile apps, and there isn't specific uh, you know, kind of written coverage of those in Title III, and there's been a big discussion. There's been the Domino's Pizza case that I'm sure a lot of you are familiar with uh, about what does that mean if it's not explicitly in writing, but you know it could have been contemplated by the statute, et cetera. Well, there's a similar discussion with kiosks because apart from things like ATMs and fare machines, there wasn't really much even in the 2010 regulations that discussed coverage of, of kiosks. And so people have really had to enforce their rights in, in the courts, and there, there isn't uh, a great amount of, uh, there's, there certainly is not as much of consistency as we would want. One of the, the um, vehicles for coverage of private business kiosks uh, really relates to, you know, where is this thing? So um, if you go to the example of the, you know, the movie rental kiosks like Redbox, and I, I'm, I'm sure like, you know, there still are Redbox kiosks, I think the settlement agreement has expired. Uh, but um, this was very live for us back in back in 2011. Um, but kiosks that are in places of business that open their doors to the public. So in addition to those things like the Coinstar kiosks, um, uh, those you know they may be operated by a separate company, but if they're housed within another business that opens its doors to the public, so would it essentially be considered under law a place of public accommodation. You could argue, and I think successfully, that the kiosk that's in there is a service uh, that is offered by that that place of public accommodation, even if it's another business. So that that's one way to get coverage. And there have been plenty of cases where even even if the um, kiosk is operated by somebody entirely different, it's not you know doesn't, doesn't even have the same uh, you know the, the 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 title is not the company that that you know like that that runs uh, the the building. Uh, and we've even seen it where like there's a mall and there's a kiosk in the mall. You could argue that the mall is a place of public accommodation and the kiosk is a service the mall offers. 
even again, if they're completely separate companies. So that, that is one vehicle towards, towards coverage. Uh, and for, for those, there aren't, again, there aren't explicit standards in terms of technical standards, but you could argue certainly that the operation needs to provide the same level or as close to the level of independence as possible, uh, similar to what the cited user has. And, th- and there have been several settlement agreements across the country where we've seen this. And uh, so I, I feel pretty comfortable if you've got a business, uh, you know, whether it's a restaurant, whether it's a grocery store, whether it's a, a pharmacy, um, whether it's a movie theater, and it's got a kiosk that is either in front of it or inside the, the physical structure, uh, you, you can you can probably argue with confidence that it's covered. And for folks out in the community, if you see some, some one of these that, that you know, folks are using independently, it's a great self-service option and it's not available to the blind community. I'd, I'd love to know about it. The one thing I did want to point out in those situations is there's a bad case out there um, in Texas in the Fifth Circuit uh, about soda machines and we've never uh, we've never done any litigation around soda machines and I uh, we have to kind of rely on what's what's out there being done by others and there's a court in the fifth circuit that has said well even if it's within a business a soda machine really isn't a place of public accommodation um, it's just like a vending machine and there are some requirements for vending machines to be accessible uh, but you can't uh, you can't really bring them in. Uh, as a place of public accommodation under the ADA. Um, And there are a couple bad cases um, about, essentially about soda machines out there. There's one involving Moe's, which I think is a a restaurant chain on the East Coast. There's also one involving Five Guys. And that brings me to the other um, exception I wanted to point out to you about private business kiosks and that is what we refer to, and we have even, you know, for the last, last 15 years, we've referred to this as the dreaded customer service exception. And this is a situation where the place of business, the private business can argue that although there is a kiosk or there's, you know, there's some sort of self-service technology in its business, in its place of public accommodation that um, allows the sighted user to operate uh, the technology independently, um, and that we've seen this in, in 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 plenty of locations. But the the examples that have come up in the courts have involved uh, either soda um, kind of soda selection uh, and ordering um, machines, or there was one involving the McDonald's touchscreen ordering system. But in in both of those scenarios, um, and particularly with the soda machines, uh, the courts have said, well. You know, we, this is probably a service of a public accommodation, so it's, it's probably covered by the law, but we don't think there's a denial of access that rises to the level that violates the statute because there is a customer service option and there's always going to be a customer service option there. Now, that's something um, I think, you know, if we, if we saw one of those cases, we would look at it really on a case-by-case basis to see, well, it really is there, you know, where is the customer service located? Um, you know how uh, you know how similar is the access that this the blind user has as opposed to the sighted user, but I just wanted to give you the that warning because that is a it's a theme that has propped up in the last I don't know six or seven years uh, that um, you know is a, is a potential limitation on access to self service technologies. I will say that um, it, we're actually being helped a little bit in our arguments by the industry because they are moving. Uh, 
uh, and you know industries all over are moving away from staffing. It's 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 very expensive uh, in terms of labor costs to have folks staffing all of these things, and the fewer staff they have, the harder it is for them to make that argument that the self service uh, technology uh, in the form of the kiosk or the tablet or whatever is indeed. Uh, uh, accessible or available in, in a similar way as it is to the sighted public. So I, I would expect some sort of turnaround on those, but I wanted to make you all aware that um, I, I probably wouldn't take a case involving a, a kind of soda vending or a um, one, one like a fast food restaurant uh, ordering system um, where there is, um, you know, there's somebody kind of hovering over, over the, the customer either way. I, I, I'm, I'm about to say something that, that possibly contradicts that. I'm hoping it's, it'll be clear, but let me know. Um, we have had cases, though, involving tablet ordering systems that are within uh, places of public accommodations like restaurants. Um, one of my favorites, this place doesn't exist in, anymore, but I'm hoping it comes back after the pandemic. There was a restaurant in San Francisco, Berkeley, Washington, D.C., and New York called Itza, and it was a... Um, uh, it served quinoa, which is which is a kind of a high protein food um, that uh, gained a lot of popularity during the last few years. And um, Itza did not have staff um, serving people. You know, you'd, you'd order from the touchscreen. There was probably only one person working in the restaurant, and there would be these cubby holes that had touchscreens on them where you where you pick up the food. And after a complaint was filed in both California and New York, Itza through its counsel quickly. Uh, recognize that it was going to have a hard argument on customer service because there really wasn't much customer service going on in the restaurant. And it agreed to make its its tablet ordering or its touchscreen ordering system accessible. Unfortunately, it's a, it's a, as, as moved on. Uh, but that, that was a good sign for us. And then following ITSA, we worked on cases involving touchscreens, uh, sorry, tablet touchscreens at Applebee's. And there, there, there was... Um, you know, there were, there were good facts on the ground. Actually, some folks on this call were involved in some of the structured negotiations around Applebee's. But one of the good facts is you could pretty much, as a customer, you could take care of most of the tasks you needed to order and to pay and to browse and so on on the tablet. And so there wasn't going to be as much of a customer service defense. And Applebee's agreed to make its tablet ordering systems accessible. We didn't bring it, but there's been a case involving Panera, and I, I'd, I'd love to see how the, the settlement is playing out, uh, because in theory, Panera should be shifting to making its its tablet ordering systems accessible. But I think those are really, uh, particularly in retail settings where the cost of labor has increased, there's a lot of inflation, et cetera, that we are going to be seeing far more of these touchscreen devices. And there are um, the, the fewer staff you have or the more independence there is for the, the sighted user uh, which doesn't involve customer service, I think the better arguments folks are going to have that the customer service exception doesn't apply and that touchscreen should be accessible. The other point I wanted to make about that is that there are this kind of a burgeoning group of, uh, of engineers and um, consultants who are working or able to work at the ground level. So before the, the, um, the device is in the restaurant, they're able to work with the operating systems, whether they're iOS operating systems or Android or even or others that um, can make this stuff accessible uh, from the design stage as opposed to after the fact. So that, that is helping in terms of the argument that it's you know, certainly not gonna be an undue burden for these businesses to make these, these, these kiosks or, or tablets. And again, we refer to kiosks as kind of the self-service technology in general to make to make those accessible. 
I I also um, wanted to point out a, a bad case that that also involves this dreaded customer service exception, and that is um, I don't know if folks are familiar with it. There's a case involving the NFB in Maryland uh, where there were self-service checkout um, machines. I mean, they're, self, they're, they're all over the country, but these were at Walmarts in Maryland. And um, this was the, the machines themselves were, were not entirely inaccessible. There were keypads that allowed pin entry, but, um, but there was a lot of touchscreen stuff on it too. And that wasn't accessible. And the court basically said, well, you know, people could, people can independ- independently enter enter um, the uh, pin on the keypad, um, and but the, the and the, the plaintiffs were saying, but look, you know, there's this guy like you know, if I have to use a customer service, the, the guy at the store is watching me do it because they're helping me with the machine, and the court said, well, I, it's 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 maybe a close call, but it's it's probably okay to have that level of customer service, and the court dismissed the the case, uh, you know, essentially saying that there was. A, a, a sufficient level of, of service or a level of access to the technology. That's a bummer for us. We disagree with that, that opinion, but it's just something for us to keep in mind. I will say though, that even, you know, even stores like Walmart are moving to more independent operation. And I do expect, um, you know, the, essentially the, the fewer staff in the store, the better the arguments are going to be. Uh, so I, I, I have some hope for how those will play out in the future, but I did want to let you know that that case exists. Uh, and it will be something if, if, you know, for example, if we bring a case around self-service checkout, we'd, ha- we'd certainly have to have arguments to counter those. Any, any questions? I'm going to start to, to move to healthcare in we a second. We do have a couple of raised hands. Frank, you are able to talk. Hi, Stuart. Frank Welty here. Frank. Quick question for you. Um, could you share a few tips for individuals as to how we can get the advocacy process going when we encounter one of these kiosks in our daily lives, like who do we, who should we try to find to talk to? What, where can we get information? How, how do we get this going? Because obviously when you encounter a kiosk, the people working at the place usually have no control over what it, over, over that kiosk. And they're, they're not really the people that can help to solve the problem. So you're in a great place, Frank, in terms of being part of CCB. Because uh, so, I, I, I think advocacy organizations are by far the best bet. You know, in, individual, even individual stores, individual managers, they just don't have the power, as, as you said, that you know, whether goodwill or not, they don't. They're just not going to be able to get it done. We have found that. I mean, this this issue really is is it's a live issue for companies, and I think you know, thankfully due to some of the work of, of you folks and those who have done the structured negotiations. That they're, you know, it's on the radar of general counsel, and even, even, and this is this, you know, this is something that's fairly recent. Even some of the design staff, maybe not the directors of design, and that's there's a disconnect between the general counsel and the, and those kind of directing design. But folks who are involved in on the kind of the, the programming and the engineering side actually are more familiar with this than they were, you know, five to seven years ago. So there is good momentum, and I would say it's probably worth, you know, whether through us or somebody else. Uh, the organization, you know, whether it's, you know, whether it's California Council of the Blind, whether it's the ACB, whether it's the Lighthouse, whether it's the NFB, whether it's, you know, having some discussion with the general counsel who can bring in whoever is in charge of design. And that, that, that is, in our experience, that's been the best bet. I know, Frank, you've been part of some very slow moving structure negotiations, so I don't want to sugarcoat how it's going to work because some of them are really frustrating. 
And it's sometimes it's very hard to get the, you know, the folks on the ground who in many cases can make this work pretty well to get them connected with those who are making the decisions. So I, I don't want to sugarcoat it. But that that is, I mean, our, our experience really is you have to have the, the, you know, the strength of an organization like CCB or like the Lighthouse or wherever it is behind it. And then the general counsel will usually, you know, given that this is now on their radar, will usually bring people into the mix. One of the frustrations I have is that, that it's, we are still seeing, you know, the after the fact, uh, you know, inaccessibility, and it's it is much harder to change things after the fact. It's getting easier, given that there's more consistency with with how operating systems work, but it's still harder after the fact. And so, I mean, I, I guess I would say I'd love to know as, as as early as possible. But if folks are in the community and they and they're encountering these inaccessible kiosks, I would say we'd be happy to. Uh, address it, and if it's if it looks like something you know something that's covered, we you know we'd be happy to work with CCB or another organization in reaching out to see if we can you know we can do something without litigation. Jordan, you are next. Okay, um, my first question is: um, What Applebee's did your case involve? And my second one is that I went to an Applebee's on April sixth, twenty twenty two, and there was at my table a tablet or a kiosk that had no audio jack, no earphone jack. And so I, should I assume that it does not have audible capability because if it did, it should have those two things. So that's, that's a great question. And uh, so app, it, the, it's, it's Applebee's across the country. Um, so that that's there. There should be, and I, I need. I don't have the dates of the rollout in front of me, but I'm I'm going to guess that the rollout should should have happened wherever you are. And um, so I would I would say send me an email offline, and we will look into it because uh, we we maybe you know we should we can at least contact the general counsel to get an answer of what's going on with that particular location. Andy Barocco, you were next. Okay, my issue is Quest Diagnostics. Uh, I took my wife there recently for lab work. And the thing is, when you go into Quest Diagnostics, there is uh, no customer service there. That What there is is there's a kiosk uh, on the wall. And uh, fortunately, we got a fellow person, patient who was there to help us uh, sign in on the kiosk. You have to enter your insurance information and the kind of lab work you want and things like that. And then we sat there and uh, we noticed people were going in and out, but nobody was calling anybody. And finally, when somebody was coming out, I kind of went behind him and went in, inside. And uh, I told someone, I said, you know, my wife and I have been here for quite a while and nobody has called us. And they said, well, no, there's a monitor. You have to watch the monitor. And when you see your name come up, then you go in the door, you know. And so fortunately, we we were eventually able to get her in. But, I mean, there was... Uh, it's a totally inaccessible situation there. So that's a great transition to healthcare. And I, I'm going to, if folks don't mind, I'll, I'll, I'll go into this briefly before taking the next question, uh, because it, this, this relates to the healthcare issue. So there is movement both through litigation and settlement, as well as through the Department of Justice and its, its, its activity uh, in, in its own uh, efforts to reach settlement around healthcare kiosks and there are several so that and I'm I there're kind of a couple of categories I want to talk about one is the check-in kiosk that you mentioned and the other is healthcare kiosks that actually do services like for for blood pressure screenings etc and both fronts are looking pretty good 
um, the, the, the ones that do screenings, you often find them in like a CVS or a Walgreens. There are multiple settlements. I think there are going to be multiple uh, settlements on the horizon as well. So those, you know, in the next few years should be made accessible. With the check-in kiosk, there's a lot of active litigation right now. And it's funny you mentioned Quest Diagnostics because there's a case involving that exact issue with Quest Diagnostics right now that's being litigated. And one of the, the, the real uh, positives, I would say, that, you know, we'll see how it plays out. Um, but one of the positives, I will say, is that the Justice Department actually, it, it, came, it came out with a statement of interest addressing Quest Diagnostics specifically in, in that case. And it said that these are definitely public uh, places of public accommodation. They're covered by the statute. And as a result, they must provide auxiliary aids and services so that people with disabilities can, quote, enjoy all of those services and that includes things like making uh, screen reader software or something to provide the audio output as well as a tactile input. So I think that, I mean, I wish it was now, but I think that points to a, a positive change in the near future for healthcare kiosks, including Quest Diagnostics. But I don't, I don't think it's going to be immediate. Uh, as I said, that this is all ongoing. And, and with the, the the one the one kind of um, difficulty with these rollouts, even when there is a settlement, is they take something take a long time. So I don't I'm not expecting uh, miracles overnight, but I do think in the next you know three to four years, places like Quest, whether through this settlement or hopefully through Department of Justice regulations, are are going to be required to have their touchscreens accessible. And I, I, I just wanted, I, I, I laughed because, you know, we've, when we've called uh, a couple of times uh, around kiosks that involve, you know, something where there's no other, there's no customer service person, the first thing that they'll tell us is, well, yeah, it's, it's pretty easy. You just look at the touchscreen. We're like, that's the whole problem here. But that's, you know, I, 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 I still, even, you know, even in general counsel's office, you still hear that stuff. Uh, so I wish, you know, I wish it wasn't that way, but that's, there's, there's still an educational piece to, to be done as well. So sorry, I just wanted to address that. I know there's an, an, another question, but healthcare is looking positive. I don't think it's immediate, but I'm very, very pleased to see the Justice Department has intervened, particularly with Quest. And I'm hoping, you know, we, we, we certainly will update all of you if there is a change for the positive there. Charlene, you may talk. Thank you. Um, back to the uh, machines in the fast food restaurants. Um, the vendor of the machine is, or the maker of the machine and producer of it or whatever is Coca-Cola. And I don't know if that will make a, a difference in trying to get the um, accessibility built into it. The other issue is that I don't have the same selection of, of beverages as does a person who will walk up and use that machine if I need to use the staff be, uh, behind the counter. Thank you. Yeah, that is that is a, a real live issue. Unfortunately, Coca-Cola was the defendant in the, the, the kind of the soda touchscreen machine case um, in Texas. And they, I'm sure their counsel is going to use that uh, in terms of future litigation and the ability of advocates to really press them on their touchscreen machines. The only thing I'll say is that I think that, you know, that, that's that's how it, how uh, the case law exists now. I do think as the technology becomes more and more, not only readily available, people are aware of it, that there may be a shift in the future. But I unfortunately, I'd say if I got a case involving one of those soda uh, vending machines, even and there are clearly fewer options and fewer independent options. There's no question that it, it, it's not equal access. 
but I, I don't think I would take it because of this this lingering case law. But that may change in the future. Okay, this next one on the panelist side, hey, but I think he's the guy that introduced you, uh, Steve Bauer. Hi. Yeah, just uh, quickly, Stuart, you were mentioning about federal funds being involved with uh, uh, these litigations. Is the fact that uh, places like Quest are receiving, you know, directly or indirectly uh, Medicare, Medi-Cal funds, does that bear any, have any bearing on uh, forcing them to make this stuff more accessible? Absolutely. And I, 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 you know, I'm not in, involved in the decision, the Justice Department, you know, in their, their discussions about what, what we're going to get involved in and what we don't. But I wouldn't be surprised if the fact that, you know, it's, it's healthcare that, that in, in many places, people are using Medicare, Medicaid, Medi-Cal, et cetera, uh, that, that has got to be a huge part of it. And as, as we mentioned at the beginning of the call, there, there are these requirements when there are federal monies or in, in California, they've, they've adopted it for state monies as well. So I would say absolutely. And what our hope is, and I, you know, we'll see how this plays out, but some of the vendors are so big and particularly when it comes to healthcare uh, that they may, they may serve multiple chains or multiple HMOs, et cetera, that if they're working on a government funded issue that they'll, you know, and they're going to have to do the accessible technology anyway. Why don't they just they just make it available across the board? So that that is something that we're hoping happens. Uh, and I think, you know, I, again, I, I wasn't part of the Justice Department's decision in terms of why they decided to get involved. But if I was if I was in their shoes, I would I would be thinking along those lines and target areas where you've got real clean coverage and you've got clean access to liability because there is, is either federal money or state money. And then see if you can use that, you know, once, once the technology is in place and, and the vendors, you know, you can't, the vendors can't tell you they don't have it because they do, then to use it to expand it in the private sector. Great. Thank you. So I just wanted to make one, I know we're coming up on the hour. I wanted to make one point, and this is, this is something CCB was heavily involved in. This is, it's, it, this is, and it's all, it falls into the, the theme of, of self-service technology, um, but it involves voting. And, you know, you, you, you folks at CCB were actively involved in the work. And, you know, Steve, you mentioned in, in the, the bio thing, you mentioned the case in New York, but one of the, one of the cases that was critical in making sure that the, you know, the secret ballot, uh, our privacy and independence um, at the poll site uh, was uh, was and is made available when you make it available to the sighted public is a case CCB did in, in Alameda County, which we are we are grateful for. And I guess I would say two things. One is there are there are these voting machines. Uh, you know, and we have an election coming up in June, and there's going to you know there there are elections in November, and so on. I think it's worth making sure that they're still accessible at the poll site. People now at, at, uh, with with COVID restrictions easing are going back to poll sites. So I think it's it's worth you know those those um, those cases are you know now, now the settlement agreements are expired, but um, my experience is that if you know, if there's nobody minding the store, the the covered entities like the registrars or board of elections will not uh, not comply or they'll they'll lack you know they'll 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 be lax on maintenance. So that's something to pay attention to. We'd love to hear results. Uh, of people who are using the accessible machines um, to see if they're working or not. The other thing is that it, it's it's we, we refer to as self-service technology. It's not exactly kiosks, but we've been working for the last couple of years, particularly during COVID, on absentee voting and uh, some sort of accessible solution via technology. We talked to some folks on, on this call about that as well. 
Uh, and we've kind of been going state by state, uh, looking at um, alternates to paper ballots. And I'm hoping that um, whether it's through some sort of policy-based solution in California or eventually through litigation, that California will catch up with some of these other states and there will be a, you know, a fillable uh, and um, accessible solution uh, that doesn't require a paper ballot for absentee. So that that's something we're working on. Again, it doesn't necessarily fall under the kind of self-service technology in the sense of machines or kiosks or tablets like we've been talking about, but that is something that's been on our radar for some time. We've got cases, you know, we've been able to get court orders in a couple of states like New York or North Carolina. Uh, we recently got a preliminary injunction in Indiana. Our hope is that California will not need something like that and there's, you know, there'll, there'll be some sort of policy solution. We're working with some folks at CCB and, and Disability Rights California on those policies, but that's something we're paying attention to. And um, the idea would be people could vote at the machine if they wanted to, and we've got to make sure the machines are uh, maintained at the poll site, but also that they'd have the option of voting absentee in a private, independent way through accessible technology. So I, I've got two minutes. I'll take a couple of questions, but I, I just wanted to thank all of you uh, for the work CCP does. Many of the cases I talked about are the result of CCP's advocacy and folks on this call, and we certainly wouldn't be where we are without that. Uh, and we will continue to pay attention to these touchscreen uh, self-service kiosk and tablet issues. And if you have one that you'd like to raise with us, we'd be happy to investigate. All right, Josh, you have permission to talk. Hi, Stuart. This is Joshua Saunders. Um, and I'm um, going to ask you about something. I think I remember a while back, I think that social there was a lawsuit having to do with social securities kiosks. They are, uh, social security has been closed down due to the pandemic, but I never found out, and I think they're going to reopen again, but I wondered whether that lawsuit resolved in making their kiosk accessible. I never heard one way or another. So my understanding is that there was a policy-based settlement to require accessible technology. I actually don't have it in front. I'd, like, I'd love to actually look it up, but that there were some difficulties with the shutdown and I, so it's a great question, Josh. I, I don't actually know where it stands in terms of whether those changes have been implemented or not. And I, I, I'd be happy to look that up and respond to CCB. I know there was a break during the pandemic uh, and I don't, don't know what's happened since then. So I think it's worth, um, certainly worth us looking into. We can update CCB about where it stands today. Jordan, go ahead. Yes, um, Josh. They are opened. Um, I got an email from my Department of Rehabilitation counselor about a week or two ago saying that Social Security has reopened. So I'm, this is Stuart. You I'm curious. Cut out there. I, well, I'm, I'm curious to know if they're if the reopening includes the the accessible technology. But I, I both Jordan and Josh, we will. I, I actually have not looked into that since the, the, the start of the pandemic, and I think that, that serves us to do so. Oh, great. This has been a lot of good information. Uh, Stuart, thank you so much for uh, taking the time and, and, of course, for everything you do uh, in partnership with, with CCB on a lot of different issues and uh, really good information. And anything that uh, you come up with, of course, we'll get back to our members. So uh, thanks for joining us today and uh, all the good work that you do for us. Thanks, all of you. Great, great to speak with you. Great. Okay. So we are going to break here in just a moment, uh, but please do come back because at one o'clock this afternoon, we'll be uh, 
Uh, that's one o'clock Pacific time. We'll be back with uh, our next session for this afternoon and uh, also broadcast on ACB Media 8. Uh, we're going to hear more advocacy information from Andy Imperato, also uh, Joe Xavier from the Department of Rehabilitation. Uh, great transportation information from uh, our resident ACB transportation expert, Ron Brooks. And of course, our elections tonight and uh, all weekend, lots of good stuff happening uh, at the convention. So thank you all for joining us this morning. We'll break now and uh, look forward to having all of you back come back this afternoon at one o'clock Pacific time.